You're listening to the Left Coast Pirates. This is Lavelle Sanders, one of the most underrated players in scene hall history. Had a great time with, on the podcast. Make sure you check these guys out. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Michael? How you doing, Tommy? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not angry at this point. I, I think I'm just like dejected. You know, I mean, it's like disappointment followed by a gut punch. You know, back in the Michigan State lead up, you know, we had all the Miles Powell injury fiasco with the the ankle. Is he going to play? Is he out for two to three weeks? All the speculation. I kind of believed it like you did that, you know what, they were holding back some of that information and he was actually going to play. Now, my boy, Sandro, he's out. This is not this is not speculation. He broke a bone in his wrist last night. He's probably out six to eight weeks. And to me, that, that's a devastating loss. I know we're going to go through this podcast today, and you're going to give me all the angles as to why this is not a big deal, and I, and I should keep it in check. But, but I think this is a big loss. On top of that, last night, that was one of the sloppiest games I've watched as a Pirate fan in quite some time. So you take the combination of the injury – you take the combination of missing out on another opportunity, just watching some bad basketball on the court overall. I, I, I don't know, man. I, I'm starting to think that maybe we have to go back to the drawing board and start reassessing what the expectation should be for this season. Oh, my goodness, Chicken Little. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Michael, we lost the game. We lost Sandro. Oh, no, and now it's going to be the NIT, not the NCAA. Oh, no. Tommy, Tommy, we were talking about possibly being top five if we had a magical run in the Bahamas tournament, and now all of a sudden, hours after he hurts himself in the game last night, I'm reading articles about how we have to tread water so that when he comes back, maybe the NCAA is going to look favorably upon us and give us like you know some special treatment if we do well in the last 10 games we're six and three we've missed out on all of our opportunities so far to build that resume and we got two huge dog fights directly ahead of us this is some this is some scary times ahead right now whether you want to admit it or not and i'm going to use your line tommy tommy we could have been top five in the country and now we're, we're barely hanging on to top 25 ranking why can't we have nice things tommy why Michael, can't we have nice things? Michael, since we're in California, stay with me here. Take a deep breath. Let all the negative energy come out. And trust me, we'll get through this as we do every week. 
And this how, how week, how are we going to get through the podcast this week, Tommy? Walk me through how we're getting through this podcast. <laughs> this week, Michael, we're going to recap the Iowa State game, covering the possible ramifications of Sandra's injury, the supporting cast's contributions, and the offensive side of the ball's identity. We're going to talk about the next portion of the out of conference and how the outcomes can affect the end of the season. We go back behind enemy lines with Brian Fonseca of New. NewJersey.com to preview the Turnpike Tussle with Rutgers. And we'll check in on where on the road to 2494 Miles Powell is this week. But first... Anyway, before you get started, I, I was so worked up in my monologue that I kind of really wasn't even listening to your response. And now I'm replaying it in my head and I just caught something. You know what? You took a Sandro shot. I, it just hit me. You took a Sandro shot. Where'd I, I take a Sandro shot? I would not do that to him. Let me explain. The, the kid's on the shelf with an injury. Everybody is sending their best wishes and prayers that he comes back healthy and strong. And you you answer my monologue with, the sky's not falling, Michael. It's only Sandro. That, I did that was not like a, say that. Was that. A I did shot. No, no, I that did not say that. That was a subconscious shot. Wrong. Negatory, Michael. You are incorrect. I would never do that. So... First of all, we recap that Sunday night thriller in Ames, Iowa. Iowa State 76, Seton Hall 66. The first four minutes of the game was certainly not highlighted by the play, but the injury to Sandro Mamokelishvili, who was forced to leave the game with an apparent wrist injury. There was nothing to celebrate in the first half for either team as they stunk up the court. Both teams shot a combined 31% and had 18 turnovers, 11 coming from Seton Hall. Seton Hall had their largest lead of the game early at 14-6, but Iowa State would ultimately take a two-point lead into the break, 28-26. Seton Hall essentially played from behind much of the second half until five consecutive points for Miles Powell put the Hall up 47-46 with nine minutes to play. But the lack of offensive consistency and 20 total turnovers ultimately did in the hall as Iowa State finally pulled away down the stretch on the playmaking ability of Tyler Halliburton. All right, Tommy, totals from the game. Miles Powell finished with 19, but essentially struggled all night to get going. He was 7-20 from the field, five turnovers, and even fouled out of this game. No other Pirate even reached double figures. The Hall, who was plus 16 on the glass in their first meeting, got out-rebounded 40-35 on the night. Three players finished for 17 for the Cyclones. Once again, leading the way were Halliburton and Bolton. But tonight's star was George Condit the fourth, with a career-high 17 points, six rebounds, and five blocks in 19 minutes off the bench. You know what? There were a couple final telling stats for the night. Iowa State took a total of 33 free throws and Seton Hall took a total of 28 three-point attempts. To me, that said it all. This was not a good game to watch, Mike. I mean, neither team showed a whole lot of, of balling out there, man. It was just not a pretty thing to watch. I mean, this game comes down to what happened in the first four minutes. And, and we're going to talk about the ramifications, what, you know, what's going to happen going forward. But Sandro's injury, whether you want to accept it or not, was a huge factor. I mean, here's a guy 
who we're going to just debate to debate now, right? No, no, I thought no, he had let, a let good me start Bahamas off. tournament. Let, let me, before you get into all your points, let me tell you something. I believe that Sandro's injury is a huge factor and has huge ramifications for the future of this program, at least this year, but not in the same manner that you think. So let's go through this and take a look at it. All right. So let, let, let's talk about the game itself, because I, I do think that his not being on the court just for this game itself is where the, the game kind of got lost. There, there are a lot of other elements, but I think it starts at the foundation of him not being on the court. Why? Because part of the success they had in winning the last matchup was the 18 points that he brought to the table. He also hit three three-pointers from deep in that game. You lost a lot of production right off the bat, and I think a lot of Kevin's game plan was centered around having that production on the floor. So let me ask you, Mike, you penciled in, when you're th- when you're looking at this game, you penciled in Mamu for an 18-point night. That's what you're doing. Uh, we read all these articles coming into the last week where Mamu might be a potential NBA player later on because of his skill set, all this stuff. And I asked you, when's the last time Mamu had three good games in a row? So don't give me this, you penciled in Mamu. We lost 18 points right away. That's nonsense, Mike. And I'll tell you what, that first four minutes, the look of it, I was I was watching that game and I'm thinking to myself, ooh, Mamu's going to get one of those games. And you know where I'm going with this, Mike. I know. One I know of the first shots of the game, he gets the ball at uh, almost in the corner. He does a little move one way, then steps back into the corner and fires this crazy three. And you're like... What that's not going in at the minute Kate left his hand, it wasn't going in. I've never seen Mamu take that shot. If Patrick Ewan was <laughs> coaching goes. our team, Here we go. he would have chewed out Mamu at a timeout like he chewed out his own player last year, saying to him, Have you even practiced that shot? Yeah, you, you chewed out Dickerson. You, that was just your favorite in the huddle segment of all time. So you just you're gonna find a way to whip that out and then once again dump it on Sandro. I, I said the same thing, it was it was a bad shot. It was a three in the right corner. It ended up being an air ball. You don't want to give the crowd that kind of momentum early on in the game. And so it wasn't a good play. I knew the minute he took that shot, I wasn't going to hear the end of it the minute we got to this podcast. But the point was what he did in that first game was not just the production. Statistically, they went small. They went small to end that game. And him being at the five and playing Roden at the four, letting Samuel get more minutes, getting our bigs off the floor that struggled with the pick and roll in the first game. We thought we were going to see a lot more of that in game two. The minute you lose Sandro, you lost that aspect of what you could do offensively. Agreed. So, Agreed. Right? So, I mean, maybe he doesn't score 18, but maybe other guys get involved because his influence on the floor relative to the mismatches he's creating. Right. I know, and then you're gonna tell me he doesn't create mismatches, but I think he does. No, 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 no. You, I, he does. He's a unique player. He's big. He's skilled. He can handle the ball. He's a good playmaker. I agree. It does make for interesting matchups for other teams. Well, and Willard said it in his post game. He said that he was going to try to do more this game of a little inside out. And obviously, we don't feel like we have confidence in Gil and Obiagu to post them up. He said he was going to try to go inside out with Sandro. Whether you like that philosophy or not, he says that all of a sudden he lost that element of his pregame strategy as well. I don't know if I buy that, Mike. Did you see any of that in the first four minutes? I know four minutes is not a big time to uh, make a decision, but it didn't look like they were going in that direction. They were just throwing up three-pointers. 
I thought they let Iowa State dictate the pace in the first four minutes. It was helter-skelter. It was sloppy. But maybe all of a sudden he decides to call a play and says, hey, let's settle it down. Let's go to Sandro in the post. You're not going to Gill in the post, are you? You're not going to Ike in the post. They were, though. They were trying. Uh, but, Mike, you know, most, more importantly than just last night when we're talking about Sandro's injury here is the impact of he being out now from, and I'm seeing recently six to ten weeks possibly, uh, because the MRI came back positive with a uh, broken wrist. Uh, you heard, you saw 10 now? I didn't see 10. Damn, uh, Zach Braziller put out uh, 10 weeks uh, on the back end. Uh, six weeks is optimistic, 10 weeks on the back end. Now, you know, I know you're going to say we lose our second leading scorer. All right, he's given us 10 and 5 right now, okay? Yes, he's given us 10 points, which you, is... You, you're going you're to take his numbers from last night and hurt his averages? Come on, that's not fair. His all right, what like was he giving us before last, last night? Game. 11 and 5? 11 and five. Seven. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm taking a point away from him. The point is, Miles Kale, who was averaging 12 points a game last year, is giving you six and a half now. So, yeah, my, uh, the guy who's scoring 12 points a game That's a whole right now, different problem, though. But just don't don't downplay his 12 and five is my point. That's I, all I was getting there. What I'm saying is it's not like you had the 17-point score, 18-point score on the second option here. Sure, but he's been the most consistent second option you've had so far. Has He hasn't done it every game, but of all the guys who have struggled, he's been the most consistent of that group. Yes, and he's in the front court. So he's going to get his touches in a different manner than Miles Powell is. You know, Q and Kale are going to they're going to fight over the ball with Miles to an extent because they're all guards. Sandra's going to get his touches in the front court. You don't have that court balance now. So it's not just the production of number two. It's the production of the guy in the front court also being number two. Well, now you have an opportunity for all those guys that you've been pushing up on a pedestal to step up and do some work. You were talking about Jared Roden being the most improved player this year. You asked me whether Tyree Samuel is going to be freshman of the year. Well, now you got two guys who've got big time ceilings. You, they're going to get more minutes. They're going to be thrown into the fire. And here you go. I, I could be wrong, though, right? So, I mean, Roden has had some challenges. I know it's only been nine games. There are glimpses where I was like, I like that one-on-one -on -one ability. I like that he's bouncy. I like that, once again, he didn't have a good game, I thought, last night, but he still grabbed you seven boards. There's elements of his game that I really like. Now I'm asking him to shoulder the burden of being a consistent scorer, take quality shots. He hasn't done that yet. So that's a lot to ask. I think he could do it, but that's a lot to ask going into some big matchups. I'm going to play Nostradamus here, Mike. You know what I see? Oh I, I, I see someone rising from the ashes. I see someone rising from the bench. I see him. It's Torian Thompson coming in to play some minutes. Oh, Sam, Samuel is going to get a lot more minutes before you see a, a concerted effort to go to Torian Thompson. So I agree. I think Kevin's got to roll the dice a little bit here and make sure that he's not putting all this responsibility on the shoulders of a sophomore and a freshman. So I, I think he's going to roll the dice. I think in, in the right situation, you're going to see Thompson get off the bench to play about four spot minutes. And if he catches lightning in the bottle, he might roll with it. And maybe, maybe there is some good fortune here. Maybe this injury gives Thompson a chance to get back on the floor. And maybe we see a different side of Thompson. I think that's asking a lot, but, but <laughs> I don't you never know. Either, but you man. never know. Mike, but let me say this. I, I said it earlier. 
I do agree with you that losing Sanjo will hurt the team. And I'll tell you why. It's not for the production that he puts in, the 12-5 and five or the 5-10 and 10 or whatever his number is minus last night. It's the fact that he has so much versatility and he's a matchup nightmare. He can make the play. He can score. He's been shooting better this year. He, he's got some creativity. He's a good passing big man. That's what we lose. We don't have just a big lump back down on the low block trying to throw it up in the air, and that's all he can do. He's got a lot of versatility, and that's what we lose. And if we, would lo- and if we lost him and he was only giving us eight and six, it would be the same difference. That's what we're losing right now. I just want to take that those 30 seconds and make it my, my ringtone every time you call. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, for as many times as you beat up Sandro, that's the argument that every fan has been kind of, you know, supporting him with. His versatility is exciting. And, and now I think the, the fan base that maybe is a little bit anti-Sandro or doesn't give him enough credit is going to realize what they've actually missed for this stretch of games. You know, well, I, I, wanna, I don't want to move on yet. You, you said Torian Thompson. I got excited. I want to talk about Torian Thompson some more. <laughs> well, well, let's talk about, let's talk about the cast in general. Cause I mean, there, what did the supporting cast do last night and how did it fare? You know, again, you mentioned miles kale before he's only averaging six and a half or whatever it is. And I've, stated it here on a podcast why I think that's so but he looked like he was going to have a good night last night started off the night at two for five and then the second half he was only one for two with long periods of time on the bench I mean why and I hate breaking down the numbers he wasn't really even two for five in the first half he took that crazy three when uh, Q gave it to him with like three seconds to go in the half and he, he had nothing to do but chuck up like a desperation three I mean, he's really two for he's really three for six on the night. He, he's been very efficient. My issue was this going into this game. We really played a very good second half against Iowa State and won that game down in the Bahamas because you got balance from the supporting cast. Sandro, Kale, McKnight, all were in double figures that night. And I said, if the team gets that kind of production consistently and Miles is doing his thing, we're a tough team to beat, right? We really are a potentially a top 10 team in the country. We have, you said it, when was the last time Sandra gave you three games in a row? When was the last time you had all three in the supporting cast against tougher competition give you two or three games in a row where they all scored double figures? That's what happened again. I mean, you, you saw the inconsistency of the group. It's not fair that Sandro gets hurt, but he gives you a zero. Kale gives you a seven. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get what you get from McKnight. And we'll get to McKnight in a second, but we even said that if one of those guys is going to fall off, you know, in their production for a night, that's when I expect Roden to step up. He didn't step up either. But but here's the question, Mike. Roden did not look good last night. Roden was taking a lot of ISO shots. He was taking step back threes. He was 0 for 4 from 3. It's like at one point, when does a coach grab him and shake him and say, you know what? You're not shooting it well. Go to the hole. But he gets more time on the floor than Miles Kale does. What? I don't get it. So here is my issue with the consistency of these minutes. We have certain guys that, for whatever reason, you want to call it the doghouse, or they're just getting placed on the bench for extended periods of time, and other guys are falling into the same bad habits, and yet we're seeing them get extended minutes. So to me, the eye test was telling me that Kale was having a productive game, was shooting the ball well on the offensive end. He was playing pretty good defense on Halliburton where conversely, Roden was not having a good game, wasn't shooting shots within the flow of the offense, looked rushed. 
he, he's looked he's looked rushed for most of the season, right? And then you look at the total minute allocation. Kale gets 25, Roden gets 26, and I'm not saying he had a bad game, but Shavar got another 15 minutes again. It's a, it's just a lot of minutes allocated to your bench when your bench is not being overly productive. A lot of players weren't being productive against Iowa State. I mean, Quincy McKnight had a rough night. Now, maybe he's banged up from all the falls he's been taking, whatnot, but he was out of sorts last night, Mike. Well, he didn't make his first bucket till the final 214 to go in the game, and that's why I hate when people go back and just read a box score. You know, I mean, so people are going to sit there and go, oh, but he, he wasn't so bad. He had, you know, he had nine points. You know, he, he was hitting the floor again. He didn't score until 214 to go in the game. At that point, Seton Hall was down by nine, and he ends up on the night going one for six from three. I guess they need better production from McKnight. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but as McKnight goes sometimes is how we go. Everyone assumes that it's Powell, but complementary pieces are more important than people want to realize. Well, I, I don't know what he was doing shooting that many threes last night, Mike. I mean, they weren't terrible shots, but as we saw last year, he's not really a three-point shooter. I'd rather see him come in, take a mid-range jumper, which he's shown that he can hit, go to the basket more and things like that. Maybe he's gun-shy from driving because he's been hitting the floor so much. Oh, so, so now we're going to pick on Q for some reason. It's I, not picking not on fair. him. It's no, just, no, 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 I get it. Taking a look at his game. I I'm not, I get torn. Some when Q has a great game, I'm like, wow, this guy's a bulldog, right? You know, he's he's grinding it on defense. He's taking the other team's uh, best player, you know, in the backcourt out of it completely. And then when he produces on the offensive side, you're like, wow, he, this guy's a baller. And then when Q completely disappears on the offensive side, I sit there and go, wow, what are we gonna do with Q? I I can't play him off the ball because he doesn't shoot well. I can't play him consistently at point guard because he doesn't break his guy down off the dribble, therefore setting up other guys because the defense has to collapse. And then was it just me? But it seemed like he was off his game defensively last night. Yeah, I mean, he, how many he, guys was he running at the three-point line, like just blowing by them with these like bailout attempts to get a hand in the face? He seemed out of sorts against Iowa State. I don't know what the problem was. Maybe he's physically not right. They were reporting that his knee's been bothering him lately. So maybe he's just overcompensating at this point. So I, I thought the team was going to take a huge leap and live up to some of the expectations and hype because not just how, how special Powell is. I honestly thought Kale, Sandro, and McKnight were all going to be, when they have a good game like they had in the Bahamas against Iowa State, I thought we were going to see that type of performance more consistently. Yeah, they were going to have a game where one of them kind of you know disappeared, but I just didn't think we would see it as much as we're seeing it so far this year. And, and that concerns me. It just well, does. One of the more disappointing factors of the Iowa State game was the team came out and it totally came out in one-on-ones, iso ball mentality. It didn't seem to have any concept of what it wanted to do offensively other than I'm going to beat my man off the dribble and then do what we got to do. Because there was a whole bunch of Powell and Prey going on last night. That, that's that's now a thing, right? I, I read it on the message board. We've used it here. It's, it's catching on. This is not a good thing to be catching on. Your offensive identity should not be Powell and Prey, and you want to be a second weekend of the tournament team. That's just that's not a good it's not a good identity to have a, at all. I mean, if it's not going to be Powell and Prey, what is it? Is it going to be 
ball rotation? Is it going to be dribble driving kick? Is it going to be a team that gets their offense off their defense by, you know, pressing and getting out in transition? We just don't know. We talked about it in the season preview. They could be, they can go so many different ways with the depth and the versatility of the types of players they have on this roster, but we are nine games in and it really just feels like if miles Powell does not have a Superman type effort, we are lost offensively. Well, no one shot the ball well outside of Powell. And even Powell had an off night. I mean, he shot four for 11 from three. But the rest of the team was four of 19. And no one looked like they were actually going to stop shooting. It was just, we're going to keep throwing those balls up. Like we talked about earlier, Roden went into ISO mode for most of the night. And he was two of nine from the field. 0 for 4 from 3, and I didn't mention before, but he had 5 turnovers, Mike. It was not a good-looking game for him. I had no idea what Q was thinking all night. He was 1 for 6 from 3. And then Tyree Samuel fell in love with that 3 again. He was 1 from 3, which is not bad. So was Shavar. But, dude, do something more. You're 6'11". Go to the basket. Grab a rebound. Do something. Now, see, I, I don't think the game plan was to shoot 28 threes. I think lack of lack of offensive movement, guys getting the ball late in the shot clock, that's the shot that presents itself. You're going to well, get a lot that, of bad That's threes. all part of the game plan, though, Mike. The, you have a good game plan. You have a solid offensive set. That's the oh, stuff that's not going to happen. I, I didn't want to go down this path. Let, let's let's talk about the offensive system. Let, let's let's talk about what the fan base is sitting there going. You know what? Let's not pick on Kevin because he doesn't have an offensive system. We are a defensive-minded team, and he's going to play the guys who are going to put the best defensive effort on the court. That is our bread and butter. That's this team's identity. I, I need to pump the brakes on this. I, I do think we are a better defensive team than offensive team. And when we've had success in the Willard regime, the defensive strengths of those teams have kind of come out as the identity of those specific seasons. However, he is not running the Tony Bennett, Virginia defensive system here at Seton Hall. I mean, we're giving up 70 to 80 points a game on a certain night. A Tony Bennett team is holding people in the 40s. That's a defensive identity where they're sitting there going, I'm resting my laurels on the fact that you're not putting the ball in the bucket. We leave three-point shooters open all the time. We don't lock down on pick-and-roll defense. Do you ever sit there and say, oh, Virginia, Michigan State, oh, they're not good on pick-and-roll defense? No, because when you're that good of a defensive team, you don't you don't let those things happen. Past the defensive team concept, but are we ever going to see an offense implemented at this school that we're going to like under Willard? I mean, it's been 10 years, and it's basically the same thing. trying to say that you've thing. seen some implemented that you don't like. I don't That's know that I've seen one implemented so far. It seems that w all we do is pray that we have some talent that then can break down their guys and do something uh, in a singular motion, a one-on-one -on -one type motion. But that's not an offensive system. What would that, mean, that? You know, what are we going to find one we like? We haven't had one. We have not had one. Here, here's my thing. Yes, in college basketball, in the NBA superior talent wins out most of the time, right? So you can give the ball to the best player on the court, say, get out of my way. Let me do my thing. I'll make players around me better. But in the college game, that's a lot to ask for. You're not, you're not going to have a Miles Powell, an Isaiah Whitehead constantly on your team at a program like Seton Hall. How do I, how do I know that? Because we've nitpicked the recruiting. The recruiting is a bunch of four-star mid-level three stars that we're hoping that are going to develop. 
So the chances are you're not putting the uber alpha on the floor that's going to just go get his and take over a game when you have three and four-star players. That's not a knock on the three and four-star players. That means that they need to play a team game. They got to screen. They got to they gotta use movement. They got to pass the ball. They got to swing it opposite. I don't think we do any of those things. You know, Mike, the, cra- the crazy thing about all this is despite all these complaints – we still could have won that game last night, Mike. Iowa State played just as poorly as we did for the most part. They they were dis- that shooting. Oh man, that was awful shooting that both teams did for a long period of time. Hilton Coliseum never felt like a raucous home advantage. I know a few people on Twitter hit me up and told me that it was loud, but they had ne- they never really got into the game last night. Maybe Sunday night in Iowa wasn't a good night to schedule a basketball game. No, it was bad basketball. I, I think that crowd was waiting to erupt just like our fans were waiting to erupt in the Michigan State game, but they never strung any plays together consecutively. It was a turn. It was a lot of, a lot of bad turnovers. A lot of missed shots, a lot of helter-skelter, a lot of fouls. There was no flow to this game whatsoever. There was nothing to really get behind. And before you know it, when Iowa State made a couple plays late to get it to six or eight, okay, the game was over. There was nothing left on the clock. I don't I don't think they really had a chance to ramp it up. So I don't think you got a chance to see their raucous home court advantage, which is a shame because that was supposed to be one of the things that was going to put them over the top. Now, you know, earlier I said the sky wasn't falling, Mike, and it's just one game. And I'll say you this. Don't we always wait for this game, Mike? It's always a different opponent, but it's always this game. I mean, in recent history, we had Rhode Island two years ago. We had St. Louis last year. You can almost set your watch to it. This happens every year to us. We show up at a game that we should have no problem winning, and we poop the bed. See, this is where I'll disagree with you slightly. You weren't favored to win this game. You know that. Oh, I realize that. That doesn't mean anything. So I, I can't compare a game that we are the underdog in to the Rhode Island, St. Louis issues of previous seasons. We were clear-cut favorites to win those games. And as you said, we completely misstepped. Here, you know, we were, we were a three-point underdog. So some people can make the argument that we were not expected to win. I think if you are the number 16 ranked team in the country, you have the All-American on the floor, you have bigger aspirations. I'm with you. I've already proven that I can beat this team. I go in and I win that game again. But maybe the Vegas odds makers were not giving us any bonus points for those moral victories early in the season. (laughs) They're the only ones not giving us moral victory points for it, Mike. You know, I'll say this. Between the loss and Sandro getting hurt, this sounds like an excuse waiting to happen. Oh, now we can't go on. We're going to be missing our big four But we've been talking about how deep we are, how big we are. Well, you know what, Mike? Now it's time to show it. And you know what else it's time to show? It's time for Coach Willard to earn his keep. Time to show why you got paid that big money extension. Outside of Desi slipping on the ice pond up in Providence a few years ago, he's been pretty lucky in regards to injuries. He's always seemed to... Yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, Whitehead got hurt. His freshman season. In our successful set of seasons, when we started making the NCAA tournament, there's not really been an injury scare. And this is part of sports. You get injured. And if we're this deep, we're this big, and you're this great coach, and everybody wants you to come coach their program, well, show me how it goes now. I'm just saying, 
this, like I said, going back to this Whitehead injury his freshman year, Whitehead comes back. And, you know, sometimes when a guy comes back, he's just not in he's not in rhythm. It takes time to get comfortable again. So everyone just expecting that Sandro is going to come back for the, the last 10 games of the Big East season and flip a switch. And we're going to be off and rolling because other guys have gotten experience during that time period. Oh, man, that, that, that's, that's a big ask. Oh, it's I, huge I, ask. Huge I, ask. I think these next two games upcoming are really important. And they could go either way at this point. And that's just not trying to be glass half empty. That's not trying to me being, you know, dejected and disappointed with a gut punch. You could see us winning these next two games. You could see us losing these next two games. So I, I want to kind of play a little hypothetical with you, right? So two out of two, in my opinion, is what you got to do to maintain any type of chance at a top four seed line without having to dominate the Big East regular season at like a 14 and four or better. Agree or disagree? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So what what if we what if we go one and one, but the win is against Maryland and the loss is at Rutgers? I, I know you know you you don't want to admit or having to accept a loss at Rutgers, but you walk away with a major marquee resume win. There's a very good chance that Maryland's going to come in uh, undefeated, top ranked in the country potentially. And you know what? It's it's a bad loss, but it's not a resume killer losing the Rutgers agree or disagree I, I don't know Mike I told you last week we need both these games especially now that we lost Iowa State yes I I think if if I was to pick a game that I would lose between these two as much as it kills me down to my core I mean I don't hate Rutgers as much as I hate Syracuse but okay close I'll take the Maryland win because it'll build my resume up Okay, well, I'll flip it the opposite way for you. So let's say they go one and one, but now the win's at Rutgers and they come back and there's no shame in losing to a top-ranked Maryland team, especially with Sandro being out. But now I look at that that out-of-conference schedule and I sit there and go, you know, eight and four on paper is not horrendous, but when you start diving into it, where is the marquee win in that entire schedule? You had a chance to have six, six quad one marquee resume-building wins and you're going to walk away at eight and four with zero. Is that type of one and one okay? It's it's okay because you, it's always okay to have a win if you're going to get, if you're looking at a two game stretch. Yes, you want to have a win versus no wins. But yes, you know what our marquee our marquee win is at that point. Iowa State neutral site, and neutral that doesn't look good. State. All right, sky's falling. We don't win any of the next two. They finish seven and five in the out of conference record. I seriously think they have to go twelve and six just to be an NCAA tournament discussion. And even at twelve and six, I think they could possibly be on the outside looking in because if you add up those numbers, that means you are nineteen and eleven going into the Big East tournament. And I'll ask you again. You could get to 12 and six. Where are the marquee wins in the Big East regular season of those 12 wins? I mean, you could ha- you could beat the bottom feeders with a couple sweeps to get half of those 12 wins. I mean, how bad would an 0-2 be in this scenario? It'd be horrendous. I mean, and then you're looking at a, if you need that 12 and six, personally, I always say that 20 win marker, if you got 20, you should feel comfortable. Anything less than 20, you're hoping for a whole lot of things to happen elsewhere. But you're, you're saying to yourself in that 12 and six, 
I need to have a Marquette. I need to have a Nova. I need to have a Xavier, a Butler on those wins. You know, you can't just beat up on the Johnnies this year because we're assuming the Johnnies are going to have a rough year. You can't beat up on Georgetown, even though Georgetown, right after they got rid of the troublemakers uh, on their roster, they came out and won a big game. Yeah, so, on the I mean, they're not going to be a tough out either. Yeah. I mean, DePaul looks good so far. I mean, my God, what's going on so far this year? So the, the Big East is not going to be a pushover. You can't sweep so, Providence and expect to get hit to the tournament. So, so I started in my initial entry to this podcast talking about how possibly it might be time to reset expectations. You're telling me don't be a Debbie Downer. Don't tell me the sky's falling. I said reset expectations. We just went through what could possibly be the the outcomes of the next two games, just two games, one being on the road and one being against a top five team in the country. And it's not completely unrealistic to potentially lose both of them as you're trying to reinvent yourself with one of your best players now not on your roster. And if that situation were to play itself out, we just painted a picture where they could be on the fringe of not making the NCAA tournament where we led into this entire season. We got pumped up by the effort against Michigan State with this grandioso concept of a single digit next to our name as a ranking, a two or three seed, and a privileged or protected seed line top four in the Northeast where you possibly can play the regional finals at Madison Square Garden. And now all of a sudden I painted a very realistic picture where if they don't figure it out and Sandro doesn't come back healthy, that – all those grandioso thoughts might end with no NCAA tournament whatsoever. And people are, people are going to think that I'm going a little cuckoo and going from one extreme to the next. I don't think so. These next two games are huge. And see, here's where losing to Michigan State when you had a five-point lead with two minutes left, losing to Oregon when you had a 19-point lead with 16 minutes to go, and 10-point lead with six minutes to go, where those two games hurt you. In college sports, you have got to grab those wins the minute you can because the season is shortened and it's not like you can win more games in the back end that are going to take over for those games. You had two big opportunities. They were right in front of you and you blew it. And all we heard was, oh, that's okay. That's okay. It just means the margin for error is that much smaller now. And all of a sudden you lose Sandro and you go, uh-oh, you know, we, we have to win these games. Our margin for error is smaller. Now you're not even necessarily favored in some of these games, right? Uh-oh. Now, now what? Well, I'll tell you what, now what, Mike? We've got Rutgers coming up this week on Saturday. And I'll be the first to tell you, I don't follow a darn thing those guys do during the season. So I am happy to say that we're going behind enemy lines today, Mike. And we're, got, we're lucky to have our guests to come out here and tell us what we can expect. So he covers sports for NJ Advanced Media, which is a data-driven marketing agency and number one provider of local news in New Jersey. Welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Brian Fonseca. Brian, how you doing today? Doing well, man. Happy to be on with you guys. I appreciate you having me on. 
Oh, thank you for joining us, Brian. Let's dive right into this big matchup for Seton Hall playing their arch rival from down by the banks in Rutgers in their backyard at the rack. You know, it's it's a it's a repeat matchup that we have every year in the, the Garden State Hardwood Classic, but these two teams do not look like the same as they did last year. Eugene Omarui left the program to transfer to Oregon in the offseason. How is that loss? of his production impacted the team so far this year? Yeah, I think it has affected the team a lot more than I think people really thought when it first happened. The way it happened was really a shock. So for the first few months, people didn't really think about how it would affect them on the court. It was more so trying to kind of figure out what the heck happened, frankly. But um, I think you see now through the first month and a half or so of the season, the intangible part they're missing is really his toughness. That kid was easily the toughest kid on the team. He, uh, he was emotional. He led the na- he had to have led the nation in charges. I know that's not an official stat, but he must have gotten at least a charge every night. And just that kind of mental toughness on a team when they're down, he he never let them sink their shoulders or anything like that. So that is missing. And he was their leading scorer, so it's always going to hurt when you got a guy who you think is going to be your captain, who's going to be your turning leading scorer. That hurts a lot. And then again, inside, um, Rutgers wasn't able to replace his production depth inside they got a kid uh, out of Stony Brook across the ball who I think has been their best player this season but he's not the same player as Eugene he doesn't play inside he doesn't play in the paint he doesn't defend in the paint the way Eugene does so I do think as the season goes along Rutgers feels the absence of Eugene more and more they won't admit it and I think they're doing the right thing in, in not doing that but I, I I really do think it's becoming more evident that they, they they miss him a lot and you know rightfully so so Brian you mentioned they had to try to figure out what the heck happened after all the dust settled, do you think the team chemistry in the locker room was still solid with the guys that were still there? Yeah, I, th- I think you could even argue that they got a little tighter. I think there was kind of a sense of us against them. I don't think directly against Eugene per se, but just it made the team feel closer in, in the us sense. You know, they felt like a more of a unit and they felt like they had to band together to compete. You know, they're they're facing an uphill battle here with the Big Ten, which, I mean, even if you look at the AP top 25, they have, I think, three of the top 10 teams in the country. They understand um, the the challenge they have, the high, heightened expectations they have being in year four with Pykele. So I think with all those uh, factors, I think team chemistry has been strong. So, yeah, I, I think that was not impacted by Eugene leaving. So on our season preview episode, we had the esteemed Jerry Carino on, and he predicted that Ron Harper Jr. was going to be the breakout star this year for Rutgers potentially a second or third team all Big Ten player by the end of the season. In the last three games prior to the Michigan State loss, he was averaging 18-8. and eight. What's been the biggest difference you noticed in those games? I want to start off by saying Jerry Carino is the man, the absolute man, best college basketball writer in the country for, in my opinion, uh, I look up to him a lot, so I'm glad you guys were able to get him on. He, he is the man. But to answer uh, your question, I think Ron's been uh, – getting more comfortable i think i started off a bit slow in the season and i you know, speak for him but i do think that some of those expectations had to have factored in a bit but he's looked to get more comfortable uh he looks a lot leaner than he did last season he came into college a bit a bit overweight and while he hasn't completely shed all the uh the baby fat i guess you can call it uh, he looks more fit he, he's he's playing well um he had a good game i, I don't have the stats for me but from my memory he had a good game against michigan state so I don't think that he has quite hit the the all Big Ten caliber uh, talent that he has. I'm not entirely sure that he'll be able to hit that ceiling this season. But I do think talent-wise, potential-wise, he is the best player on this team. He's a good shooter, can play inside, plays decent 
average defense, and uh, he has a lot of room to grow, but uh, not to contradict Jerry because I thought the same in the, the preseason, but I just don't think he'll be all Big Ten quite yet by the season. Yeah, he only went for nine and four against Michigan State. I didn't want to slight the guy since he had such a nice little stretch there with those three games. So it seemed like the light bulb had gone off to a certain extent. So I want to give him his give him his due and and, and not hold back based on a, a tough Michigan State road performance. Speaking of that tough Michigan State road performance, Gabe Brown of Michigan State was quoted as saying, it's tougher in conference play. A lot of those Rutgers players got better. Who could you say fits into that mold? They got better from last season? I think... Montez Mathis keeps growing. I, I think he is top two defender on this team. Between him and Caleb McConnell, I think they're the two best defenders on this team. And he's growing in a very quiet way. I I don't think his production or his offensive uh, game really screams how much he's improved. But sometimes you just watch him move on the court, you and you glance at the box score and you think this kid is this kid is getting better. I think Caleb McConnell, who I just mentioned, has skyrocketed uh, from. I remember the first few games he played last season as a true freshman. It looked like he didn't belong on a Big Ten court, to be quite frank with you. And now I think he is their best defender. Uh, he's long. He plays hard. He plays great on-ball defense. He, he, his hands are so active. And he's getting more confident on the offensive end of the floor with each game. Uh, he had his breakout game towards the end of the season last year against Illinois. Uh, he dropped 31 points in Champaign. He's not quite yet to that level, but um, it feels like he's ready for – a breakout game any minute. And then Miles Johnson, their starting center. Uh, he's gotten better on the offensive end. He's playing slightly better on defense. He's, he's, he's taken a gradually progressive improvement every season since his freshman year. He's really lost a lot of weight since uh, he also came into uh, college of weight. He has a huge issue with foul trouble, which I think should scare Rutgers a lot the entire season, but particularly against Seton Hall and, and their group of bigs. But uh, on the whole, he has improved and continue to improve uh, with each season of his college career. So I think those are some of the guys that uh, Gabe Brown might be referring to. Miles has gotten into some foul trouble, as you've kind of alluded to here. Who can pick up the slack for him if, if that were to be the case in, in a matchup against Seton Hall, since Seton Hall is known for their size, respective to the rest of the country? Yeah, I think that is the biggest question Pykel is, is going to have to answer this season. I think uh, he hasn't found an answer yet. And to be honest with you, I don't think there is an answer on this roster. I think Miles Johnson is the only legit uh, strong Big Ten big they have on the roster. I think you know, Shaq Carter and Mamadou Ducor do do what they can. They're, they play hard. I just don't think they have the talent to you know copy Miles' production, and I just don't know if, if they're adequate enough to replace him. The drop-off when Miles gets in foul trouble is significant. I think when they played their first game, against, their first loss, rather, against St. Bonaventure, uh, Miles Johnson missed the last 13 minutes of the first half, and that was when Bonaventure went on a, a double-digit run. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it must have been something like 20 to five, or they they blew, they got a double-digit lead after Miles Johnson got off the floor because he is such a big presence on both ends of the floor. And, and again, I don't think Rutgers has the the means to uh, to to back him up when when he does get in that foul trouble. Now, since the school is right just down the turnpike, it's kind of hard to keep secrets. But who would you highlight as an unknown X factor for Seton Hall fans to keep an eye on in this game? So a kid who I think has a chance to have a great game is Jacob Young, only because he has all this potential and he has he hasn't hit it yet. He's a transfer guard from Texas and uh, he sat out last season. When he gets the ball in the open court, he's kind of like a I, I don't even know what the the 
the comparison is to make. He just runs straight ahead, and he has he's the fastest kid on the team, and it feels like he wants to do everything at once. And he ends up getting uh, getting I don't think rattled is the right word, but he he just tries to do so much at once. And I think if he's able to harness it and and control himself, I think control is the biggest thing that's missing in his game. I think he's due for a breakout game at some point this season. I'm not saying it'll be against Seton Hall because I do think Seton Hall is one of the three best teams Rutgers will play this season. But if there's one guy who's under the radar that could have a breakout game, I think it's him. Would I bet on it? Probably not, but I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. So what aspect of the game does Rutgers need to control in order to come up with the W? Biggest thing for me is Miles Johnson cannot get in foul trouble. I think if he gets two early fouls like he's tended to do this season, I, I just don't think there's any way Rutgers could hold off in Hall. They got a big Rutgers got a big boost in a sense with uh, Sandro being out. I think even then, uh, Seton Hall has a ton of depth in the front court. I think Ike Obiagu is a monster. I watched him play live a couple times. And he is a monster. I think he's going to be a handful for Rutgers. And I think that's the biggest thing. If you can avoid that, I think this has to be a game where the three point shooting three point shooters get hot. Ron Harper, Geo Baker have not had terrific games from the outside. They've really been struggling. If they can just get their shot going, feed off the crowd. I think this is going to be the best crowd that Rutgers is going to have all season. I think people are jacked up for this game. It's a very, it's a really important game, I think, for Rutgers, given the full start they've had to Big Ten play, and they're on a two-game losing streak now, heading to Wednesday's game against Wisconsin. So I think they have to feed off the emotions. They have to contain Miles Powell. I think Pykele is going to switch a ton of guys on Miles Powell. He's going to put Montez on him, put Caleb on him, Jacob Young on him, just rotate as many guys to make life as difficult as possible for Miles, uh, Miles Powell. And... Uh, Hope that Miles Johnson can uh, hold off on the fouls. It's it's a really tough assignment because, like I said, I think Seton Hall is one of the three toughest teams Rutgers will play. And if they get hot, if you let Miles Powell get hot, I just don't know how how you can uh, how you can beat Seton Hall. So it's a multifaceted problem, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I kind I kind of think you hit it right there. I, we're trying to figure it out as a fan base after Sandra gets hurt in that Iowa State game. It it was kind of pretty obvious that as Powell goes, the offense goes and. Powell had a had an off night and Iowa State kind of neutralized him. So I, I honestly think that if Rutgers can kind of find a way to force the other players to beat them, this is going to be a more competitive game than what most people probably realize. That's probably the, the strategy that I would come up with is throw the entire kitchen sink at Miles Powell and, and force, you know, force Kale, force the secondary front court players to fill in for Sandra. I would 100% agree. And I do think that Miles has been eyeing this game for a while. I, my, my, this memory stuck in my head for years, for the last two years now, with uh, Eugenio Maruri gets a steal on an inbound the last 20 seconds of the game at the rack, and he's going to go for a wide-open layup, and Miles Powell just pushes him in the back out of frustration, gets that flagrant foul, and I mean, he, he just looks pissed, man, and I think he's really wanted to. I think he got some revenge last year at the Rock when uh, Racine Hall beat Rutgers, but I think he's really wanted to, to get a win at the Rack. I think him and all his teammates that were – I, I don't have, again, I don't have the roster in front of me, but any of the kids that were on that team in 17 that lost that game the way they did, I think they're really, really hungry to come into the rack and get a win just because of the way things uh, things unfolded there. They're not the only ones who want that win back there, Brian. <laughs> uh, the, the problem is the guys that really want that win back, the Delgados, Carringtons, Rodriguez, that, that, that team has moved on and graduated. So Powell's going to kind of have to carry the torch for those guys. Uh, since they're all on that team together. But you, you already kind of mentioned that, that, that this is a rivalry game, right? It it gets heated. You know, it, it it has its moments, and the crowd is a huge part of that rivalry experience. 
how big of a factor is the sellout crowd going to be in determining the final outcome of the game on Saturday? I mean, I think it's huge. I think it's huge in any game with college basketball, uh, just because of how how the game is. I think Pykele mentioned it uh, after the Michigan State game or in a recent podcast. I can't quite remember where I heard him say it, but just he mentioned how you know these are young kids and they feed off that emotion. And I think even in that game that I mentioned in 17, just Rutgers started getting hot in that second half and they started hitting shots and they started playing better defense and they really fed off that crowd. I've been covering this team not for too long. I think this 2015 season was my first one. That Seed Hall game in 17 was easily the best environment I've been in at the rack. And I think that helps emotionally. I think uh, it neutralizes some of the, the deficiencies Rutgers has. And to answer your question, yes, I think it helps helps a lot. All right, Brian. So you've been covering the team since 2015. I don't know how far you go back as a fan. Tom and I are not going to date ourselves again on this podcast, but we go back uh, a pretty far distance into this rivalry. Over all the games that have come down the pipeline in this series, there have been some pretty memorable matchups. Give me your one or two favorite of all time. Yeah, I'll have to preface this by saying I'm, I'm not a fan. I am I am uh, an objective reporter. Uh, not <laughs> not to say, not, not to sound all smiley or whatever, but that's just the... Uh, a prerequisite I think I have to go through. I did go to Rutgers for full disclosure, but I am I root for no side. I root for a story and a great game, just to set the record straight. Yeah, I think the 17 game was the best game I ever covered at, in the short time I've been covering Rutgers. It's, it was just electric. I think one of my favorite things in sports is the anticipation before a big game and when the crowd is filling in and you feel that buzz in the air and guys have an extra pep in their step in the warm-ups and everyone just knows the magnitude of the moment. And I never felt that more than, than that 17 game. It was really special. Yeah, I, again, I, I did not follow Rutgers basketball very closely until I went to college in, in 14. So in that very small sample size, 17 was easily my favorite. And I thought I thought last year was great, too. I think that the Prudential Center, when it gets full, it gets loud, man. And they have a great atmosphere there, too. So, again, I, I can't go as far as back as you guys. Uh, I'm sure you guys have some amazing memories from, from the ones I, I didn't get to see. But uh, that's my perspective on, on the rivalry. But we're getting to the point where coming? our memories are fading, so don't feel bad, Brian. <laughs> dig, dig, dig into those memory bags, Tommy. Which one's your favorite of all time here? I'll tell you what. You, you know how um, how players say it's not the big wins they remember, it's the beats? I'll mm-hmm. tell you, that 2017 game sticks in my head because I, that that was the game they shouldn't have lost. And that game would have and, – and Mike and I have bemoaned that game quite a bit where that was going to push us – into I think uh, like a, a top twelve uh, ranking for the at the moment or something like that. But those the beats stay with me longer than the wins. Oh, the beats, Tommy. How about Herb Pope getting called for the moving screen in 2011-12 season? I think if Seton Hall doesn't lose that game at home to Rutgers in overtime, I think they get an NCAA tournament bid. So I know my my good friends that went to Rutgers stick that one to me over and over throughout the years. So, but my favorite game in the series is the game uh, in 2001 where Seton Hall ultimately makes the tournament. And I think this is one of the games that kind of springboarded them. They won an overtime game at the rack that went to overtime. They blew a big lead at the end of regulation. And Rashad Kent calls timeout a la Chris Weber when they didn't have any. And Seton Hall is able to kind of rally in the final minute or two based on those free throws. They get a couple buckets. And I thought that win kind of propelled them into the NCAA tournament that year. But that atmosphere at the rack, I was in the the last row in the upper deck. You just felt like the building shaking. I mean, they wanted to beat us so bad that year because they knew how important that game was to us. I kind of get the feeling that that's going to be the same atmosphere at the rack 
for this upcoming game on Saturday? I think people have been looking forward to this game for a long time. Um, it's it's fun because you never know what's going to happen, and I think that was really reinforced in, in 17. And, hey, man, rivalries are, are the, some of the funnest stuff in sports, so I think it's going to be an awesome, awesome game. Okay, Brian, before you go, I know you're a reporter, but you're going to have to go on the record here and give us a prediction. Who do you think takes it? I have, since the preseason, I thought Seton Hall is going to win this game. I'm going to stick by that. I think especially more after what I've seen the first uh, month and a half. I will say uh, Rutgers has a tough time handling Miles Powell, not for a lack of effort, but because he is an absolute stud, uh, who I've been saying is a baller for the past three years. I'll say Miles drops uh, 28 and Seton Hall wins, let's say, 74-69. That's a little too close for my liking, but I'll take it. <laughs> It's a rivalry game. I can't get myself to make it any further than that. I just think uh, I think Rutgers won't won't die, but I think Seton Hall will win. I think if you're a Seton Hall fan, you're you're happy to get a W and walk out the building. Yeah, I'd agree. Well, Brian, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast, and please come on again. I it's been a pleasure, fellas. I really appreciate you guys uh, thinking enough of me to ask me to go on and. uh, Here's to many more years of me coming out to your podcast, fellas. I really appreciate it. Brian Fansack, everyone. Tommy, not everybody from the supporting cast had a bad game. I think, once again, Romaro Gill brought his best effort. And, whoa, did you see that? Right off of a timeout, Seton Hall ran their traditional high pick and roll, row dove to the basket, and they hadn't even come back from commercial yet. And, boom, big throwdown dunk. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, where is that all the time? Where you know, is that all the time? You know what was really impressive? that He looked really athletic doing it. And I know that sounds strange for someone that could jump out of a building like he can. But, you know, big guys of his kind of stature are kind of plotting at times. He really rolled nice on that. He looked really athletic. And that's the thing. I mean, Roe does, for the most part, plot along in, in the middle. But when once in a while he gets the momentum going and you're like, Wow, I didn't know he had that in him. It just this goes back to everything else again. It's just not consistent. So, you know, we talked about the inconsistency of the supporting cast. The whoa, did you see that moment? I want more consistency out of my whoa, did you see that moment? Because if, if Roe could do that with the, the high pick and roll, he would force the defenses to really collapse and adjust a lot differently. Because how, how do you not guard a guy 7-2 rolling to the basket? Well, you'd have to run it more than one or two times a game, Mike, and get him open, but... Just to finish up uh, the Iowa State game, I'm not going to pick on any of the announcers this week. You know who I'm going to go at? I'm going to go at a former college basketball great, Lafonso Ellis. Lafonso was part of the in-studio crew, and they were talking at halftime about what Seton Hall needs to do. And he was talking about why Sandro was a big loss for them uh, on the injury front. And he starts talking about how his back-to-the-basket game and this and that. And I'm just sitting there wondering, has Lafonso ever watched us play? It just seems like these talking heads just say the same things over and over. I think Lafonso thinks it's still the late 80s and everything's running through the center like in the old days, Mike. I, I think he looks down at the stat sheet and goes, oh, this guy's 6'11". You're right. I haven't watched them play. They must run their offense through him in the post. This is like, this is the second time, by the way, in the stupid stuff the announcer said, we've actually gone off the broadcast crew and gone back 
you know, into the studio. Last year we picked on Casey Jacobson because they were playing the Villanova game. And he's like, Seton Hall needs a more key victory. And I'm like, did, did, did we not beat Kentucky? Did we yeah. not beat Maryland? Not saying yeah. that Lowell Galinda had a wonderful game on the mic, Mike, but I mean, this was just bad. I also think Tim Welsh plays some of that coach fraternity thing where he doesn't pick on, you know, what Willard did right or wrong in that game. And I and I thought there were opportunities for him to take a couple of shots. I mean, not necessarily shots, but be a little more critical. You said it earlier. Iowa State, not a good three-point shooting team last night, but they shot four of 19. We didn't go zone once. You, you could have made a comment like that, right? You know, give some more coach speech to say, hey, I'd like to see Willard go zone here, force Iowa State to make a three-pointer. You didn't, didn't really do that, right? There were, there were a couple moments where Willard could have called a timeout when Iowa State was making their run to make it close in the first half. Willard doesn't call a timeout. Sometimes you see the color commentator go, ah, oh, he needs a timeout here. You know, Welsh didn't do any of that. He kind of just sat back there in the catbird seat. I thought it was weak. Not all was lost this week, Mike. Miles Powell made some strides and made another pass on the road to 24-94. With 19 points against Iowa State, Miles is now in 8th place on the all-time scoring list with 1,869 points. He displaces all-time great Andre Barrett, who sat at 1,861. A two-time Big E selection and also a 2004 Haggerty Award recipient. He finished top 10 on Seton Hall's all-time scoring list, as you previously mentioned, with over 1,800 points. He finished second on the career list in assists, 662 only behind Shaheen Holloway, and top 10 in steals with 173. He was a four-time All-Met performer, and he's one of only two players in Seton Hall history with over 1,000 career points, 400 rebounds, and 400 assists. So here, here's an interesting thing about Andre, Tommy. You know, we, we've gone over some of these names already where, like a guy like Walter Dukes, we didn't get a chance to watch play, right? So we're reading his rap sheet, and we're like, wow, that's, that's some impressive accomplishments. And you just try to put it into context relative to say, hey, has, have other players accomplished that type of, you know, those types of accolades over the years? So who's better, who's not? We've both gotten a chance to see Andre play. You know, what stands out? Give, give me a couple of moments from Andre's career that stand out for you. You know, it, it's it's not so much moments. I mean, there's the Arizona game and the NCAA tournament, but it's just the way he came on as an 18-year-old freshman, and it was just his team. The, it, was, it was just him. You know, you knew he was the bonafide on-floor leader. So it, that's that's what I always saw of him. And whenever he was in the game, the ball was in his hands. You had that comfort level. So it's more than just like particular moments for me. I mean, did Andre really, you know, have an inch above 5'8"? I mean, what do you, I mean, come on. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, I would, I forget the year I was on campus. I was back East visiting uh, family and I went on campus. I'm walking around and who do I see walking around? Andre Barrett. So I go up to him. I introduce myself. He's probably like, who is this guy? And I shake his hand. I tell him how much we enjoy seeing him play. He had the biggest hands, man. I'm telling you, his fingers went past my wrist, man. He had control that you, then you understand why he had that kind of control that ball see i thought he had the biggest heart watching him play so as you mentioned when you had that diminutive point guard on the court it just didn't feel that way it felt like he was the man and he knew he was the man and when he wanted to take over a game you weren't gonna get in his way to and, and do anything to stop him you know i've heard him talk in other interviews about his effort in that double ot pick game uh 
when they made the NCAA tournament a senior year. I loved that game. I was at that game. That was that was quite the atmosphere at Continental that day. But he put that team on his back, and he was just like, I, we weren't losing that game. I was like, you weren't? You know, you're playing the number four team in the country. He's like, we were not losing that game that year. Yeah, he's one of my all-time favorites, if not my absolute favorite pirate of all time. Hey, next on the list is another one of my favorites, Double O, Mark Bryant, former podcast interviewee with yes, 1906. We know. When the name Mark Bryant is brought up, you drool on the other side of the microphone. I'm yes. smiling ear to ear, man. But anyhow, we so we're figuring maybe two more games and Mark Bryant's number should go down. Why? If, if he puts up 37, he can knock, knock it down in the next game, right? I mean, you might need 37 against Rutgers for, for that to happen. <laughs> Let's hope not. So, Mike, we got Rutgers this week in what I'm calling the turnpike tussle. What do you say? Where do you come up with this stuff? Do you want me to get behind the turnpike tussle? How about we go in there and we get down and dirty because it's going to be a rock fight. It's going to be a hostile environment. I don't even care what the spread is. They are going to make that game their Super Bowl like they do every year. And, and we got to come out with a win no matter how, how we slice it and dice it. I don't care who steps up. I don't care if we get into, you know, three skirmishes. They got to get that win. Turnpike tussled. Just bring the trophy back and get business taken care of. I agree with that sentiment, Mike. And as we always say, go Pirates. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Marcus Toniel, Lavelle Sanders, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkaharski, I am Mike Dizzy Dizzyri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Pirates.